Hey everyone, welcome back to the Keep It Quirky Podcast Quarantine Edition. This is Katie Quinn, and I'm back to bring you conversations with creatives and entrepreneurs in the food and travel space, and to remind you that you're not alone and we're all getting through this quarantine situation together. I'm really excited to bring you today's episode. It is with the incredible Ravneet Gill. So I first heard about Rav because of this pop-up that the London food community was going crazy for. It's called Puff Bakery. And I ended up going to it with none other than the amazing Rachel Koo. Hi, Rachel. She introduced me to Rav Neat and her partner, Nicola Lamb. And then the very next week, I got dinner with two friends in the culinary industry, and they were both speaking wonders about her as a pastry chef, a leader, a community-minded gatherer, and even like an on-the-low consultant slash cheerleader for so many people in the food industry. She started a technology company called CounterTalk, which helps bring this philosophy of good people and good companies to life. And she just released a book, The Pastry Chef's Guide. Her recipe for chocolate chip cookies resulted in quite literally the best chocolate chip cookies I've ever made slash had, and I'm not exaggerating. So if someone can turn a staple into a golden ray of chocolatey sugary perfection on my lips, that person is special. I knew I had to have her on the pod. Here's our quarantine chat. Let's hop in, shall we? Yeah, let's. This is the highlight of my day. I put on makeup for you. I showered. Yeah. Like that's... I washed my hair. I put on a shirt. I'm actually wearing a shirt. Wow. This means, this is respect right here. This is, this is mutual respect. <laughs> the very definition of. Isn't it so weird, like not wearing clothes right now? Like not wearing any clothes that, are, that you would ever wear. You're just wearing like indoor clothes. Yeah. The elastic band is like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's there. I wear like jumpers and jogging bottoms all day. Yeah, it's so good. Okay, so can I tell you, because we have met very briefly, but not a lot, do I get to call you Rav? Like, who gets to call you Rav? Yes. Everybody. Because Everyone. I feel like no one can say Rav Neat. And what it is, is my family and all my, my closest, dearest, they call me Ravi. Because oh, cute. I think that's, yeah, like a growing up sort of nickname. Yeah. Rav is, you know, anyone and everyone. Rav Neat is if you actually want to say my name. I'm not really fussy. Okay. Yeah. I like yeah. the name Revneet, but... Thank you. I feel like no one ever says it right, so <laughs> people just... I just say, oh, just call me Rav. <laughs> I've only just become comfortable with the fact that my name is Ravneet. Now I'm okay with it. Okay, well, good. I'm glad you're okay with yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> I think because, you know, when you're a kid and you get teased about things, and now, now like, we're adults, so it's fine. Yes. People can say it, yeah. Yeah, we are adults. Sometimes I yeah. forget that, but we yeah. are. We are. Um, <laughs> but speaking me. of things that, that, that are both childhood and adult obsessions, um, mm-hmm. I would put probably at the top of that list, chocolate chip cookies. Yes. And yeah. you, have, you have been very vocal about the obsession that you have for them, <laughs> which has in turn created the most delicious chocolate chip cookies <laughs> that I have ever actually made with my own hands has been your recipe. I'm so glad. Oh I my God, like hands down. Everybody is making great cookies right now and it makes me really happy. Dude, it is like getting us through this quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> your recipe when I, is amazing. When I, made, when I did the, that cookie tutorial like last week, was it last week or the week before? 
I just thought maybe a few people would make them, but so many people are now making these cookies. It makes me so happy. Started a revolution. Yeah, a cookie one. A cookie one. I also, I also had not anticipated that we would be in lockdown for this long at that point. I just thought, okay, a week or two, and now we know that we're sort of in it. I'm glad yeah, that people man. have something to do. We are in it to win it. But so you, as you briefly mentioned, um, that you did this Instagram live tutorial mm-hmm. showing people how to do these chocolate chip cookies. So that was my first ever Instagram live. I'd, ne- I'd never done one before. And I just thought like five or 10 people would come and watch. They'd make some cookies and that would be, I just honestly thought it'd be like a really silly small thing that maybe like my family would watch. But yeah, yeah. I had, had not pre-rehearsed that or anything. It just sort of happened. And also because my publishers were kind of like, you need to promote your book. You need to do something. And I was like, okay, great. A recipe I can give out this easy because you don't need a tin and you don't need all this special equipment is cookies. So let's do cookies. Yeah. And like, who doesn't, who doesn't love cookies? And I was just fed up with eating terrible cookies. So I just wanted to educate people on how to, how to get that nice rise in the cookie. Well, dude, no, that's what was so great about it is that you, you really did strike this incredible balance between like entertaining like it was great you were talking about like how your mom wants you to get a husband and like all of a sudden you were talking about your nan but then you were also talking about like the sciencey bits like the difference between baking powder and baking soda which you also explained yeah. really beautifully in the introduction of your book in, in ways that it just like makes people understand um i'm so glad yeah and i so- think because people always ask those questions but don't really ever know why and i didn't know why for ages and right. it makes a big difference to know. Well, it makes a big difference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. In- information is, is power, right? Yeah. Did you learn that kind of thing while you were at Le Cordon Bleu Pastry School? Or did you, was that something that came before or after that major kind of educational step? So you definitely have to learn quite a lot of theory at Le Cordon Bleu. So they, you get a theory paper. Um, and it's, it's not that hard to be honest. It's, you know, it asks you things about different fruits and sugars. And so you definitely get a really good theoretical background by going to cookery school, but I wanted to create the book in a way that it would help people who couldn't afford to go to cookery school, like give you all the lowdown and all the key pieces of information in that book. So, you know, cause me at the time I didn't have the money to go, but I like paid for two terms and then had to leave after that because I thought, okay, I can't afford another three, three months. But yeah. If I'd had sort of a guide, a, like a, a guidebook that I knew about, maybe I wouldn't have gone to cookery school. Right, you would have been able to save the money for those first two terms. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, exactly. So I, w- I also went to Le Cordon Bleu, um, but for Did you? for cuisine, not for okay. And I wanted to go. I wanted to do the patisserie program, but the school messed up my visa situation and I had to leave. So I did it in Paris and okay. I did the, the cuisine de basse, the like basic mm-hmm. cuisine program. And then I was going to stay on to do basic patisserie too, but yeah. like, I didn't have the visa and I had to go back to America. Oh no. But it's okay because now I have your book. Now Rab. you have my book. Yeah, exactly. So it's all perfect. Like that, <laughs> that happened like five years ago and it was all leading up to your book publishing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also I found like I you know don't get me wrong I did I did enjoy aspects of cookery school but as soon as you leave and you want your intention is to be a pastry chef you know your the way you work is completely different than the way you work at cookery school and the methods that you use like you wouldn't you wouldn't be so careful about a recipe because you're in a kitchen making it for a hundred and it needs to be done quickly 
So when I first jumped into kitchens after cookery school, I used to get shouted at so much because I used to like, you know, get my tray ready, get my spoon ready, you know, set, set my section up. But that's just not reality. Do you have people asking you all the time, should I go to culinary school? And how do you respond? Because surely you are glad you went, right? Yeah. I mean, I have, I, that's one of the questions I get asked the most is, should I go to cookery school? Is it a waste of money or should I go and learn? But I think, I think a lot of people feel that if they don't go to cookery school and they don't get that stamp of approval, that they don't feel that they've got that sort of like validation in some ways. So a lot of people in kitchens will say like, oh, but I didn't go to cookery school. And you know, I don't really know this. But actually, if you go into a kitchen where you have a boss who's willing to teach you and guide you through things, then you don't really need to go. If that makes, you know. Yeah. I think as long as you've got a supportive boss, I think the best way to learn is on the job. And then read, like read loads of books and you'll be fine. What are Pastry some of school your... is lovely, but if you have the luxury of, all the, of, of the time and the money, yes. If you don't have that luxury, you shouldn't feel lesser or like an imposter for not going to cookery school. That's so important. I hope everyone out there listening like really takes that to heart. And I mean, yeah. imposter syndrome is real. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. you know, you can... Yeah, educate yourself. What are some of your favorite books? What are some resources that you would suggest? So I, I've always read so many pastry books, even in all my jobs. Like I, just, I just find it like the, the best resource and the best way of playing with different things. I love the, um, the Michelle Rue books, Dessert and Pastry. They're two of my favorite books. I love most of the Rue Brothers books, to be honest. I think they're fantastic, well, especially all the old school ones. I really love David Leibovitz's Perfect Scoop um, book. Yeah. It's fantastic. That's one of my go-tos. Nice. Um, I love the, like, the La Grotta Ices ice cream book. Oh my God. It's just yeah. beautiful. It yeah. So innovative and wonderful. Yeah. And um, I love those like fat theory books that you sort of get from like the Institute, Culinary Institute of America, or, you know, like there's one called Frozen Desserts and it's huge. But I love books like that because you can just dive in and find out all the theory. And that's my sort of thing. Nice. So you like nerding out on all this? Yeah, I really do. Yeah. (laughs) What would you say you're best known for? Um, In in the foreword of your book, Fergus Henderson writes about your cheeky, cheeky desserts (laughs) and being known for that. And like, what does that... What does that mean? Uh, I think because when I went to St. When I, so when I first went to St. John, I write very publicly that I, I wasn't on board with it. You know, I didn't, I didn't, really, I didn't really get it. I, I didn't really know much about the history of St. John. Yeah, and, and just I wasn't, for anyone listening, sorry to interrupt you, but just a little context, St. John restaurant is um, one of the most famous restaurants in London. It's known for head to t- or nose to tail cuisine. Um, Fergus mm-hmm. Henderson is the chef. So sorry, go on, yeah. continue. No, no worries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't know much about it. I also didn't know much about all these ingredients that they were using because I did not grow up eating them. And, you know, I'd gone in to sort of find another, to, to make some money so I could find another job in another field because I didn't want to be a chef anymore. And what happened was um, when I was there, I'd gone in with a mentality of all these like Michelin star desserts. And even though it has got a Michelin star, I, I wanted the like bougie, you know, entremets and all these like fancy things. And that was really what I wanted to go for. So when I saw their desserts and it was a, a piece of tart on a plate with a like spoon of creme fraiche, I used to think, oh my goodness, like I want to, I want to bring them more. So I started like bringing in all these like little ideas and, and at the beginning they, they didn't work because I was so on the other side. 
And I just didn't understand why they wouldn't use things like fruit purees and why was it always fresh fruit and in season and why can't we use mangoes? And then over time, honestly, over time, my mind just like completely switched. And I think it's because I was eating all that stuff every day. And I suddenly just like realized how beautiful and gorgeous it was to have something that just represented the season. And like a piece of tart on a plate is way more, that's, that's perfect, is way more impressive than something that looks incredible, but may not have all those components. And like knowing that all the ingredients have come from like local farms or I think it's just way more it's something that I could appreciate a lot more. So then I started to like be cheeky with it. So I, I'd be like, oh, can I make an ice? So I, I bought, for example, ice cream sandwiches, which is not something you would see on a St. John menu. But then I'd, I'd do a tasting for Fergus and Trevor and do like 12 different ice cream sandwiches on the table and we'd go through all of them and, you know, fun and silly things like that. That's really fun. So let's talk about countertop. Um, mm-hmm. It's something that you started in 2018. So I set it up sort of to be a community for people in the industry to talk to one another and like network and do fun things as opposed to just sort it was meant to be sort of a a union for people in the industry but an unofficial one and I just spent a year matchmaking people into jobs so I would have like done a done a day's work experience here or or for example Brickhouse Bakery which is not there anymore sadly but I I worked there for a few weeks and I just thought it was one of the best places I've ever worked it was just incredible loved it I was just doing some cover and a place like that I can verify oh my god it's incredible you absolutely should go and work at Brickhouse so it just sort of became a year of being like yeah I've worked there go and work there or no no like maybe don't go and work there it's not the right place for you and then after a year I decided okay I need to monetize this in some way because it's taking all of my time I was working full-time as a chef during during that first year and like replying to emails between 12 and 2 a.m I remember doing that every day that's how I got it off the ground so I set up this tech platform that could sort of verify the people for me and yeah, and the companies. So you go through like a vetting process on the website and then depending like if you pass that or not, you then can put, can choose a package and post a job. Oh my God. Setting it up. Yeah. <laughs> Setting that up was like, I underestimated how expensive that would be because I don't know anything about tech. So, you know, yeah, I was pay. just wondering, like, are you like a secret <laughs> coder? Like what's happening? Not at all. Like I know I'm like, my friends laugh because I'm so bad with tech that they find it hilarious that I have a tech platform. Um, so I have to outsource all of those jobs. I have an incredible web developer from Copenhagen who set the whole thing up for me. But, you know, it, it's an expensive thing to do in terms of like paying your web developer, paying your designer, paying, actually paying the, because it's, it's all about data protection and it's a jobs board oh, system right. that, we, that the website exists on. Right. That's a high fee to pay every month. At the moment, it's a bit of a contentious issue actually because of Corona. Mm-hmm. So yeah, to keep it going, it's, it's about 300 pounds a month before I've done anything else just to have the website existing. So yeah, obviously Corona and who knows, but well, so it's been going quite well. Is this a, yeah. <laughs> you still got a smile on your face. That's yeah. so bad. <laughs> so is, is Countertalk like, or how do you make money from it then? So like the companies that. Yeah. So I, so the companies that post ads pay for packages. So they okay. pay, you know, a fee to right, get that's right. The package that they choose. Yeah. Yeah. That's yes, right. exactly. Got it. Um, you know, I obviously, I wish I could run it for free, but then I would just be paying for it, which I've been doing for the, for the whole year and a half. It was all free. 
Yeah. <laughs> and then I was losing money every month, a substantial amount of money, you know, giving out free ads to people all the time. Yeah. It just, and then when I think when I realized it is actually financially costing me a lot of money and I'm, I'm still having to work a full-time job to keep this going, yeah. I needed to like change that around. So doing that and having a bit more financial freedom with Countertalk as a platform has helped so much because also a massive part of council, which I think is so important that we don't talk about enough, is paying people for their work. So assume, like when we do events, even if it's a panel, I'm going to pay you to sit on that panel and talk because your time and your opinion is worth something. And if you're taking the time to come to a place to talk about something you're an expert in, I'm going to put a monetary value on that. And I think it's very important to do that. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. So yeah. I wanted to, to, let it, to let it pay for itself and to... Yeah, you know, and to have a bit more money so I could do nicer things with it for yeah. people. And you are all about just generally speaking, and then it it really gets expression through countertop. But you're all about a sustainable, friendly environment, which is the yeah. opposite of most kitchens, of course. Yes. <laughs> so what what caused you to actually do something more about it and and start countertop? Well, I think that, you know, my, the first couple of years when I was a pastry chef, none of my friends were chefs. You know, I, they'd all been my friends from uni or friends from school. Um, so when I was working in these crazy kitchens and I wasn't enjoying it, I didn't really have anyone to speak to. I couldn't really, I would speak to my friends about it, but they couldn't relate or understand because it was so alien to them. You know, they were all in like their grad schemes or, you know, lawyers or doing something like that. It was really so different world. To me. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, even my family, I'd come home in tears all the time and they just sort of used to say, oh, you know, maybe, maybe it's you. <laughs> I used to think, I used to think, God, maybe, maybe it is me. But, you know, there was so much aggression and like needless toxicity and bullying that I, I, I guess I didn't recognize that it wasn't okay until I stepped into St. John. I just sort of accepted that this was part of my job and this was part of my day you know, somebody snatching something out of my hand constantly was a part of my day. And like having to, having to, you know, verbally argue with people about something so meaningless was just part of my day. And like being constantly exhausted was just part of my life. Now I just hadn't even considered that there was something out of that. Like I remember most of my social life between like sort of 20 to 25 consisted of like working all the time I had nothing outside of work I'd used to miss all my friends birthdays all social gatherings on my days off I would just lie down because I was so exhausted and I remember I used to make pancakes on every day off just to like give me some joy but I wouldn't see my friends because I was so drained and my day off would be like Tuesday so you know I, I, I went to St John and then I I sort of realized that you could have a life and be a chef it was a completely new way of kitchen life for me like you got your rotor request so you felt a bit in control of your life you could say hey Jonathan who's the head chef in two weeks time I have a birthday on Wednesday evening please can I have it off and you'd usually always get get it off so you felt like you had control hmm. and that feeling of having control of your life makes such a huge difference because if your restaurant is open Monday to Sunday you can be working any day 
and you usually get told on the Sunday before the Monday. So you can't really make plans and you just sort of, you know, I think that whole loss of control thing is a really big factor as to why you can get really down in this industry. Mm-hmm. Whereas at St. John, I knew, okay, they're closed on Saturday mornings, they're closed on Sunday evenings. So I, I know that on those two parts of the week, I can make a plan or, you know, it's just those little things sitting down every day and eating together. And it wasn't just like cereal because mm-hmm. in so many places I worked, you would eat Cocoa Pops or Frosties as your lunch. Are you serious? <laughs> Yeah, if you managed to get lunch. And yeah. it was just such, you know, such a cycle. And, I, and, you know, going to St. John, I loved it. It was like heaven. I realized, yes, I want to be a chef again. I left St. John to go and work somewhere that I thought was going to be dreamy. And it was just back to the same, like, bullshit again. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but, you know, the same crap of people treating you badly or people having inferiority complexes and, you know, problems with authority. It was just another cycle of being completely drained and I I guess I'm always the one to speak up about it I will always say it (laughs) I'm not someone who's just gonna like after especially after I gained a bit of confidence I was never just gonna sit and allow it yeah so then I I just sort of thought (laughs) yeah I'll always say it I always call people out yeah well and like okay I just have to read really quickly the first sentence of your bio which I think like if people don't know you it like gets straight yeah. to that aspect of you which yeah. I really love Revneet Gill is a bona fide badass and her drive to cut through the crap and not take the accepted norms of the food world lying down is being applauded throughout the industry I feel oh, like that yeah. describes it really really well but yeah my my parents always say like since I was young, I would just will not keep my mouth shut. If I don't like something or something's not right, even if it's not happening to me, I will shout about it, even if I'm on the tube. It's like you use this bona fide badassery <laughs> to, to, to create an environment where people are happy. And I mean, that's something that Fergus Henderson said in the forward. It's also something that a mutual friend of ours, Mel, told mm-hmm. me, like, it is incredible. Rav just creates this environment. She's like, I've never worked in a happier team environment where just like everyone feels like we're in it together. And and she was just describing how really special that is. Um, oh, thank you. And so I think, yeah. I think it's really I think special. Like you've got the balance. Yeah, you've got the balance. <laughs> I, think, I think a big part of that though is like not mistaking that with like I, whenever I cr- create a pastry team or a group of people who are working together, I'm never going to be that person who's going to constantly baby you and like handhold and, and like, you know, pet you. I'm never going to be that person who's just going to make, say the things that you want to hear, mm-hmm. but I will 100% be there to push you all in the right ways. And if I feel like I've pushed you a bit too much and you can't handle it, we're going to go and sit and talk about that. Yeah. But I'm also doing this because I want you to work in a certain way because it's going to benefit you. Like I never create a team of people who, you know, are not going to work well together. So for example, when I set up a recent pastry team, one of the first things we sat down and spoke about was, okay, no bitching in this team. You do not bitch about each other. If you have something bad to say about someone else, come and tell me, we'll talk about it. But as soon as you start bitching in a team, you're going to bring the whole team down. So there's things like that that I'll be like, like, okay, don't do that. You set up the rules yeah. straight away. Yeah. And like respect everybody because everybody has got a different skill set. Even if the commie isn't at the same level as you, there is something that a commie does better than you. So you also need to have a respect for that person. And you as a commie, you need to respect whoever's above you and also know that they're there because they've, even if there's something that you don't like, they're there because they've spent time getting there. So we, you all, all need to have respect for one another. So I'm never like 
the person who's going to baby the team. But at the same time, I'm going to be like, have you eaten today? Are you feeling good? Mm. You know, tell me, was, how was your date last night? Like, yeah. you know, there was, <laughs> there's definitely like a mix to it. But, you know, yeah. I, I do think that there's a fine line between babying people too much, especially like the newer generation who are coming into cooking. Those young, those youngins. Yeah. <laughs> like I'll be tough with you, but I, it's all for the, it's all for the best. But at the same time, I 100% care about your well-being. Yeah. So I'm only tough in a work sense, but not in a, not in a personal sense. And I always say to everyone, this is not personal. This is no personal attack. This is because I want you to be better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I want to speak a little bit more about Puff Bakery. Yeah. Because like when I went with Rachel, I couldn't believe that like, luckily she had gone there before me. She was already inside and I walked past a line that went around the block and I had another friend who was in the line came in like as we were leaving and she was like, I mean, she had just stood in line for two hours on a Sunday morning. Like people, people don't do that (laughs) unless it's something really good. So first of all, congratulations. What an awesome pop-up you and Nicola did. How did you guys, how did you meet her and how did you guys decide to put this together? Thanks. Well, I've known Nicola since we worked at a bakery together a few years ago. Um, And I met, I was only working with her for a few weeks and I actually got fired from that bakery and she, (laughs) (laughs) because I got fired because I spoke my mind. Um, And I, yeah, I was very vocal about speaking my mind and and I got fired, but I, you know, looking, I think for a while I felt really bitter about that, but now I feel it was definitely the right thing. I would have fired me if I, if I was the boss. (laughs) So I was in the wrong. I, I fully take responsibility now. So Nicola worked there. And we sort of knew each other for, for a few weeks. And then when we left, I got given this opportunity like a year and a half later to open a bakery for someone else. And it was a, a restaurant, quite a well-known restaurant company who are opening their bakery offshoot. And they said to me, you know, you've got to bring a team in. Who's going to be your sous chef? And I said, well, Nicola, I'd love it to be Nicola. So me and Nicola got together. We'd start planning for this bakery. We've got all our plans in place. You know, we knew who, who we were hiring. And then it fell through it completely just fell through because of, you know, money and the, the restaurant not being straight with what they were going to pay. And, you know, it was really, it was quite heartbreaking. And then we both went our heart, like went our separate ways for a few years. Then we came back together. We sort of mingled about and spoke about doing things together, but it never worked. And then at Christmas time, we were just sitting having a coffee in Spitalfields and we said, Oh, I was like, I really am fancying a rice pudding, you know, and, and a pastry and a cookie and this, and a coffee. And, we, and I was just like reeling off all these things that I fancied and Nicola was adding and we were being so silly. And then I was like, why doesn't that place exist? Like, why can't I have a pudding and a cake and a pastry and a flatbread in one place? And she said, she said, I don't know. And I said, well, you know what? I've been given this space to do a pop-up. Why don't we just make that place? That's what happened. Yeah. And then, and then we just sort of like started being really silly and like imagine and talking about this place that we'd imagined and, you know, all our friends will come and it'll be really nice. And then that's how it happened. So then I said, okay, we'll do four, we'll do four pop-ups on a Sunday. Let's call it uh, Sunday Bakery or something. And then I was like, oh no, I've actually wanted to open a bakery called Puff for ages. Let's call it Puff. I drew the Puff icon on a post-it, sent oh it to her. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she like digitized it. And Nicola is like one of the most organized people I've ever met. And she, you know, got all the signage done and the stickers and all that sort of stuff. And I just, I was like, I'll do the photos and the Instagram. 
And then, yeah, she took care of like the doughs and the vinoiserie because it's her speciality. She's really good at um, laminated doughs. And I sort of did like the puddings and the cakes and the flatbreads and it was that a really flatbread. Like, I still dream of that flatbread. Oh, thanks. Can you just you. tell people what was on it really quick? The grapes were did so you, genius. Oh, you had the grape one? Yeah, that yeah. was. So we did this like four day fermented flatbread with like a gar- like comfy garlic mascarpone, first grapes, uh, grace burn dairy cheese, honey from London Honey Company, and some thyme. Ooh, it was, it was everything. It was everything. <laughs> okay, and so I told you before that I'm writing a book about fermentation. So can you yeah. just totally selfishly here. I'm not sure if the audience is also yeah. having the same question, but what, what do you, a four day fermented, tell me more, like the dough was well, before you. No, so we were doing, um, we were mixing half as our, as our like, um, what's the word? As our, as our yeast, we were using like a half Levan and half Poulish method. Nicola, Nicola really helped me in this, I have to say, because I was going flatbread crazy before this. And she's, because she's got good experience in bread, and good experience in sort of pastry, her brain and mine came together and she was like, okay, why don't we try proving it for three days? Why don't we try a fridge, a fridge proof for two days and then a this and then a that. And then that's how it came to four days. So we would start the process on Thursdays of like getting our poolish ready, mixing in a levain, then the next day mixing the dough, then letting it rise all day outside and then putting it in the fridge overnight for the whole of the next day and then boiling, you know, it was all these sort of precisions that Nicola and I came together for. Fun experiments. And I feel like (laughs) not just on the recipes, you two are such such a complimentary duo, but it sounds like also the skills that you bring to the team, you know, with her like hyper organization and your uh, kind of like community minded, like able to bring people together. Um, That's really cool. So is, would you guys like ideally like to turn that into a brick and mortar situation? I mean, I don't know. I, I really don't know. And I think that I've, I'm also always overly cautious about opening my own business because a lot of places I've done quite a few restaurant openings over the years. And I think I've seen a lot of friends go through it with their own businesses. And I just think London is such a tough market that I'm really not sure if I would move that to a, a brick and mortar place just yet. And especially, you know, now what we've been hit with and, the, and how hard this is all going to hit the restaurant industry. I really, really don't know. At right, the moment, now is not I, a good time to be like yeah, planning. <laughs> no, like I hate being in a, in a position where A, I can't pay someone or I've let someone down or, mm-hmm. so I just couldn't imagine having to be in that position with yeah. a bait, with like my own company right now yeah. in terms of puff as a, as a, as a, you know, full blown pay. So at the moment we're just going to keep it as like fun pop-ups. And also Super the fun. good thing about it is, you know, we just get the best of the best ingredients together. We find like all these great suppliers. And then we just cook and make nice things and we don't worry too much about our costings or this because we don't have to worry about, you know, rents and overheads. So that might lose its charm if we were to turn it into somewhere. Yeah, no, I get you. There's something really special about having it be an occasion, an occasion together. That's really, that's really cool. Um, Rav, I am so thrilled to have been able to connect with you and have you on the podcast um, Thank you for having me. There, there is, there's something that you say that you do um, in the intro of your book. Um, and I think that it applies in a way to this podcast and also my um, slogan for life, which is keep it quirky. Mm-hmm. Um, and you say, <laughs> you say, follow a few rules and break a few rules. So yeah. 
what are some of the rules you follow? What are some of the rules you break? And another way to ask that question is, how do you keep it quirky? <laughs> um, well, I just think in pastry, there are some rules you have to follow. You know, if your sugar has to reach 121 degrees, it has to reach 121 degrees. But I'm not going to waste my time sieving flour. I'm not going to waste my time, you know. I'm just not, I think when pastry gets too meticulous, I just, I stop listening. And I make it work another way. I'm always all about, yeah. I'm always all about, oh, like Nicola thinks it's really funny because she's so pedantic and she'll be like, this one part isn't right and it's really freaking me out. And then I always, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah, 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 why not? (laughs) Yeah, she always says that my go-to reaction is always, oh, fuck it, we'll be fine. (laughs) And she just thinks, she's always like, you know, that really, that really calms me down because I just think whatever happens, happens. And we'll just deal with it. And we do. (laughs) That's like really beautiful. And I think that that does totally apply to how do you keep it quirky? You just go, oh, fuck it. Yeah. (laughs) Like like life is not that serious. And we'll we'll get through it. it. We'll all be fine. Honestly. I'm I'm a big believer in like not letting all your thoughts take over and just sitting behind your thoughts and watching them and knowing that they're separate from you. I'm a big big believer in that. That is very yogic of you. Yeah. You keep it quirky with the best of them. Um, I'm so, I'm so glad to have you on the podcast and happy quarantining. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. And you're the reason why I wore a shirt today. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again, Rav. It was such a pleasure to spend some of my quarantine time talking to you. Everyone go follow her at Eats on Instagram. And don't forget to pick up her book too, The Pastry Chef's Guide. Thanks for hanging out today, everyone. You know where to follow me at QKatie on Instagram at Keep It Quirky Podcast. It's nice to be back with you all. Big thanks to my brother, Brian Quinn at FunkyBQ for the theme song you're listening to right now. And until next time, don't forget to keep it quirky. I'll leave you with a little outtake, a little behind the scenes from my and Rav's conversation. I love your accent. I, f- I also feel like most talk shows and everything should always be with someone American because they just sound way more pleasant to listen to. Okay, you know that you kn- you do know that we think the opposite, right? Really? Oh, I, yes. I just think everything sounds better in an American accent. Everything, dude. No, we we think everything everything sounds better in a British accent. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, so I think we can't we can't get away with it as much. <laughs> I don't know. That's that's my theory, anyway.